Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Kato Podcast. In the upcoming episode, you're going to hear how to implement active shooter training or critical incident training into your community, into your schools, into your community buildings, and other soft targets within your community. And we recorded this episode prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and also prior to the push to remove school resource officers from campus. As a former school resource officer, I can tell you that's a huge mistake. Not only are we the first line of defense for attack on a campus, but we're also there to build trust and to have communication with the young generation of the world. And that's what we need to do. And so as you listen to this podcast, think about the challenges in your community. What are your soft targets? How are school safety plans gonna change because of COVID-19? And the last thing we wanna say to you guys is, there's no tougher time to be in law enforcement than now. And for everyone out there that has the courage to still get up each day, put on that uniform and protect the community that they've been entrusted to do so is honorable. And from us at Cato, we're proud. And we'd like to say for you guys to stay safe, stay true to yourself and continue to hold that line. And thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. Hey, Mitch, for uh, those that uh, don't know you or haven't seen your YouTube um, channel, we know that you work as a school resource officer. You're also a SWAT officer. Have you done anything in the uh, um, in the school administrative wise to be able to blend both of those? Uh, school safety is one of the biggest topics in America right now, and is that something you have any kind of experience in and being able to to blend the two worlds? Yeah, no, I had. Um, I I can tell you when I first uh, walked on to the uh, the campus. Uh, I currently. Uh, Work for the city of Brentwood um, and assigned to Heritage High School. It's a school of about 2,700 kids, um, about 100 teachers and staff. And I remember walking onto that campus and being kind of overwhelmed of like, what can one, you know, officer on campus do? Um, not to mention there was a principal, four vice principals, four counselors, a marriage and family therapist, and a psychologist. Um, and those were all for the students, right? And as a resource officer, our role on campus is simply that like we're a resource, you know, for the kids, we're a resource to the teachers, to the administration, but even to the parents. But the more and more I walked that campus, um, having the background from the SWAT side of things, you know, you really truly realize how campuses or school campuses are true tactical nightmares. And I would walk that campus on a daily and think, okay, if something happened here, what would I do or how would I do it? What would be my reaction? And then the more and more I did that and more I began to speak to the teachers and staff, I realized I knew what I would do, but they had no clue on what they would do. So it was almost like, I'm not going to say blood on my hands, but I felt responsible for the fact of trying to find a way to get these teachers trained. So they began honestly with um, conversations on the sidelines of a football game um, with the superintendent, the assistant superintendent saying, hey, we need to do something. We're not approaching it in the right way. And 
I'm not saying it fell on deaf ears, but it kind of fell on where there wasn't the urgency that I wanted. Um, so I kind of did my own research on it. Um, found a couple different programs run hide fight, um, the Alice model. Um, and what I saw was that the, the Alice model was, you know, kind of industry standards on what's going on with, um, how we're training civilian response to active shooter. Um, I then submitted my own training request, um, to my department, um, went to the Alice program, became an instructor, uh, to that point, my chief didn't even know that where we were. Um, and then the Parkland incident happened. And what that caused was my chief to kind of get a little bit of anxiety about, hey, we need to do more in our community. So he started researching. He found Alice and he found out that I had already been. And the first thing he did was call me in and ask me how we're going to implement it. Um, so I gave him my ideas. Um, I think it needed to be about a four hour training. Um, probably two hours of that presentation on past events, lessons learned, and then a two hour scenario based training. Um, and then really honestly, he got the wheels in motion, brought the superintendents in. I laid out kind of how I would like to see this be implemented. And then we went from there. So that whole process was a two year process getting that to that point. But then once that happened, the idea was, um, we're going to start by training the administration. And then in a nine month period, we have two different school districts in Brentwood and we will have, uh, 1800 teachers and staff trained. And then we recently included drills where we're actually bringing the students involved and we're teaching them how to barricade and teaching them how to evacuate and actually, actually doing those things on campus when they get the alert. So you're, you're basically talking about three different components. You have the, the law enforcement side, the training, and the structure of how you administer the program to the schools. So that's training up your staff, the police officers, to provide the practical application part of that training. Then you have the school districts. Um, in this case, they did the ALICE program, so they do the online ALICE program. And then that also documents them. So part of that civil mitigation is the failure to train, failure to supervise, failure to document that. And so that, the ALICE program is what your district uses to, to meet that component, correct? And then, and then the third part's that practical exercise where police or law facilitate actual training with the students and staff on how to respond to various scenarios. But you had another component that you dealt with, and that's the community. And so how did you reach out to the community? Um, you, you, if I remember correctly, you kind of had a couple different formats or venues you used to communicate with the public what this program was. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Right. So what I, so my role as a school research officer, you kind of learn that, you know, parents truly just want transparency. And in law enforcement, that's what every agency is, is striving to is the transparency when it comes to those type of things. So before we rolled um, all our teachers through this training, and before we rolled any of our students, we held a school safety symposium. We marketed it through our you know, social media pages. Our schools marketed it through the social media pages. Um, we even ran 
ads in the local newspaper, getting parents to inviting them to come. And it wasn't just going to be about like critical incident response on campus, but it includes stuff like traffic safety around campuses or around schools, right? Probably one of the number one things uh, in a community when it comes to schools, right, is the traffic going on behind them. So um, we did that and we we held that at the local high school. We invited all schools. We have um, 11 K through eight schools and then three high schools. Um, and when it, time it comes to parents, um, a lot of times you don't always get the response that you want. People show up, you know, unless it's directly affecting them. But we still had about, I'm going to say about 150 to 200 parents showed up in that. And then I went through the critical incident response on what to expect from law enforcement and how we've changed and how we're continuing to change, you know, obviously since Columbine um, to the fact that, you know, the four man diamond, we're not even waiting on that anymore. We're actually teaching our officers solo officer engagement because the sooner you can stop this, this, you know, the sooner you can engage it, the sooner you can stop it. So I was transparent on that. And then we were transparent on what we were going to teach our teachers and how they were going to train and the things that we were going to go through. And then from there, we're going to implement it all the way down into the kindergarten classes. And, and that's the biggest thing you get back from the active shooter training is the two things you get are you're teaching, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, to fight guys with guns and you're not you're teaching them to do more than just get underneath the table and hide right and the thing with what our policy or what we've been taught for years that whole model of getting underneath the table and hiding what people don't realize is that when it comes to school shootings seven out of ten people are killed with the headshot right and all of us in that SWAT world we can all tell you that it's hard to make a headshot so how are these guys with no formalized training other than Call of Duty or Fortnite or whatever video game they play. It's actually, and that's what we're doing. So um, <clears throat> that model and what I think we're doing is we're, 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 we're doing more than just like getting underneath the table to hide. And the other feedback that we always get, the question I always get is, aren't we teaching our active shooter or our next shooter our tactics? And absolutely. But he needs to know he's going to have a barricade to have to get through. He needs to know he's going to have to he might have a fight on his hands. He needs to know there might not even be anybody in that classroom because we're going to be able to evacuate. See, the biggest thing with schools, they've always been afraid of accountability, right? Accountability, accountability. we got to be accountable. Well, to me, survivability trumps accountability. We're going to find you. Hundreds of cops are coming, helicopters, drones. We're going to find you. The biggest thing when it comes to a violent incident on the campus is remove yourself from that situation to survive it or take back the control that that person has. And it's interesting because intellectually, and you can you can talk about this, uh, I've talked about this from people from other countries who've dealt with this more than America, and they've grown up in these countries where that kind of violence is regular part of their day in the city, on school buses, or city buses, things like that. And they kind of chuckle at our response because we're not used to it. You know, we're, we don't live in we're fortunate in our country not to have bombings regularly, not to really worry about suicide bombers on buses and some of these things other countries deal with regularly. So they, they kind of chuckle. They're like, yeah, it's not a one size fits all solution. You can't tell everyone just hide and everything's going to be okay. Depends on the situation. And as a public, we have to educate ourselves on what that looks like and what that means. Unfortunately, that's the reality that we live in is, is teaching our, our kids talk about this all the time. I have a nine-year-old. I've never brought it up to her, but at school, her and her friends will talk about 
what what would we do if this happened or this happened or they hear something on the news or a kid comes to school and tells a story he saw on the news or something his parents said and they talk about it so pretending that they don't i, I would suggest that or offer is not a good strategy well you can go to the point where everybody out there in this world that's listening to this podcast right now that we all know what to do and if we get set on fire right even kids from preschool they're taught to stop drop and roll right but we're so afraid to talk about our school, our kids getting shot in a school where there hasn't been a fire in 50 years in a school that hurt anybody, but there's been multiple school shootings where we're so, it's like taboo, like we're afraid to talk about it. And, you know, with, I have my own kids and I talk to them all the time. I have one in college, high school, middle and elementary school. So they all know they have an idea of what they could do. Um, and that's the thing we can't be afraid of. We cannot be afraid to talk about it. We have to talk about it. So we're going to ask you to just cover kind of the basic components. Obviously, uh, this could be an eight-hour class just to teach our fellow uh, tactical officers how to implement these kind of programs. But let's just kind of do a rough summary of uh, the components and how you implemented uh, your program. So first thing is buy-in, right? You got to have uh, some sort of collaboration between law enforcement and educators. And I think a lot of times that's missed, um, but this is not... The res- whose responsibility is this, right? You asked yourself with the assembly bill coming out, who's responsible for getting this training implemented? Um, and honestly, it's it's both. It's both law enforcement and it's both education. Um, sometimes in certain communities, you don't have that. You don't have a good relationship between the two. And I think the first thing you have to do is you have to rebuild that relationship and get buy-in from both. Because without support from local law enforcement and without or res- support from the the superintendent of schools, um, you're going to have struggles, right? This is a topic. And when I do my presentations, the first thing I do is I apologize, right? To the student, to the teachers saying there's, we live in a world that we have to have this type of training and all of us, you know, and all law enforcement are in military. We got into it knowing we are going to, we could possibly get into an incident like this. One of the things you mentioned in your experience, and we won't delve too deeply into it, but in your particular agency, uh, you were working on this on your own because you walked around the campus and you saw some critical vulnerabilities there. But at the city level, the grand jury was examining the city's response and was investigating if the school district in your particular agency was working together to solve those problems. And that was prior to the legislation. So you're uh, you're from the North Bay area, so it's not it's not a big leap to think that other people, other grand juries, other organizations, city managers, county supervisors are going to want to know what our agencies are doing and how we're implementing it. So that in some ways that worked to your favor. No, it did, and then we actually got hit. So Contra Costa County, not only the our agency, but our school district got hit with the grand jury survey. And part of the questions were, is what are you doing to train teachers and staff? Um, and a lot of times you'll have the school side of things who, well, oh, we'll do this drill or we'll do this drill. But it, where is it documented? Where do we have it documented? Law enforcement. Well, we did an active shooter presentation a couple years ago. Well, to me, that's not good enough. So um, that was part of the... I'm not saying the driving force because honestly, I didn't get any, I didn't get any kickback from this. Like it was well needed, um, and I think everyone on board bought in for the beginning. I didn't have to sell it. Um, it was something that I was passionate about because of my role as a school resource officer. 
Um, and I just took the initiative to come up with the idea of how we were going to be able to implement it. And my chief gave me every bit of resource that I needed and the school gave me every bit of resource that I needed. And I can honestly say that I haven't had one person, I didn't have to fight at all to get it done. And I can tell you the teachers come in with a look in their eyes of being scared, anxious, and nervous, but they leave and you can almost see the confidence being built in them. And I tell them, this is not about scaring anybody. It's only about preparing you. And they leave feeling more empowered and more confident on how they would how they would react to a critical incident on their campus. So let's talk about that component. So you 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 managed to, uh, and you can elaborate this more uh, in your article, but you you get the buy-in, and with that buy-in comes the funding. So you train your officers to be instructors. The school district um, has to. Uh, in your case, they purchased software that provided some online training, and and also, uh, as we all know in law enforcement, your uh, your your critical liability there is failure to train, failure to supervise, negligent retention, and then the documentation. So it's great to provide the training, but if we don't document it, uh, you you mentioned a statistic, and I don't know if it's still true this year, but in the past when we've talked about this, um, the average school district pays out how much money per student in the event that you have a, a mass casualty type event? Oh, it's millions. It's millions of dollars per, per student, per student um, when it comes to a mass casualty incident. So the amount of funding and in our community, you know, by the time we are finished and completed with the training, we'll have 1800 teachers and staff trained from two different school districts and the funding is minimal. Um, you know, it costs our agency a little bit of money to have some of our officers go to the course. Um, and it costs minimal for the licenses for the online training and the teachers. And the good thing about the online training is this, the teachers, they have to do mandated reporting training and those type of things. And not to mention if, if the, you have a, there's a turnover in the education world. And if you have a new teacher come in, you can provide the online training, even though there's no scheduled scenario training or the presentation that we give in our community. So it gives new teachers or substitute teachers that are coming in an idea of what our school districts have been trained on what to do. So honestly, like the cost of it, you can, I don't think you could put a value on it because the cost to a community or cost to an agency or a school district is, is minimal. So let's talk about the rollout. So you get the buy-in, you get the funding. How do you roll this out to the community? How, uh, what kind of, what kind of, what were just the, the components that you use to kind of get the parents on board with, uh, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing. Right. Cause there's a lot of misinformation out there. There is a lot of misinformation, but the first thing we did and, and completely from the beginning, when we put this training together was the idea was to be transparent through the whole process. Um, so we wanted to get ahead of, um, any, questions or concerns that parents had. So we held a uh, school safety symposium, not just on critical incident, but against, again, against uh, like traffic safety around schools. Um, and, you know, we stood up there as a police department along with the superintendent of schools and answered any questions that we have. But I did do a presentation for the parents on critical incident response and what we are doing to train our teachers and staff in our community. But part of that training, I also, I put it on the, on the parents, right? Because anytime there is one of these incidences, we're always quick to blame 
the school and we're always quick to blame local law enforcement. And the thing is, is you got to tell parents that these are well-planned events being planned in someone's home and they have to get involved in their kid's life. Like they have to get involved in their hobbies or find out if, you know, if they're in a good mood and then all of a sudden they're on their phone and now your son or daughter, their mood changes. Maybe they're being bullied. You have to get involved to see local law enforcement and the schools are never going to stop one of these incidences where these events are stopped are in the home prior to anything ever happening. Our, our true responsibility is to how are we going to respond to it to hopefully mitigate some of those casualties. So we started with the rollout to the parents or the school safety symposium. And then we went into how are we going to get our teachers trained and it was harder than I thought as far as timing and scheduling goes for the teachers' contracts when they have, depending on what they can do, like how much training they can have. So what we had to do in our community is we had to break it into two two-hour blocks of training. So they got the presentation, um, and then they came back a few months later, and they went through the scenario process. Um, so at first they do the online so they're on their yeah. own okay. and they get their, they get their credits or te- their, their credits for in-service training through the online program, which helps you because that breaks the ice on some of the concepts that you're going to talk about. Correct. Very yeah, correct. So right when we rolled it out, the school district, they um, emailed each teacher with the link to do the online training. I think it was about an hour and a half training. Um, they got ideas and concepts from that. The second part of it was a two hour presentation um, that I put together on lessons learned from past events, because I can promise you this, that, the people that are that choose to do these type of mass casualty events is they're becoming students of the game. They're studying past practices, and we need to understand what can we learn for each one of them. Um, once they, and then we also part of that presentation is getting them a new mindset. Right, no more going to get down underneath the table and hide. We're going to teach them that it's okay to evacuate. It's okay to barricade a door, and you know what I tell them is this: the people that do these are cowards. Absolute cowards. Anytime they're met with any kind of force, whether that's me, whether that's the teacher, whether that's a barricade at the door, they're giving up, right? Because they're absolute cowards. So it is a mindset thing for the teachers um, to start having them think a little bit different. Um, And then the third part is our scenarios. Um, We run them through scenarios of, hey, how does it feel when all you can do is hide in that room? And when you put the statistics on on the board and you write, okay, how many of you were hit? how many of you are hit with headshots and what we've done is and it sounds childish but we used a toy nerf gun um, because you can use it but you can know how often if someone's hit right um and then you start building the confidence from there you teach them how to properly barricade doors that open outward or doors that open inward and what you can do right or countermeasurements you talk to them about hard corners and how it's important to get out of view of a window like all those things you teach um you know you teach them countermeasurements to you know, get in their OODA loop and how you can mess up someone that's going to do one of these events. So you run them through and it's all building blocks to start building that confidence and make them feel more empowered. Uh, Mitch, in your particular instance, you uh, ultimately trained over 1,800 staff members uh, at the school district in your town, correct? That's correct, yes. That's including janitors, staff, yard duty, teachers, anybody that's working at the schools. And well, how we, yes. And what we did was we started with administration. So the administration could be the on-site 
person to be able to answer questions to their staff. Um, and part of that training, what we did was we made it site specific. So we didn't, um, because every site's going to have a different, you know, obstacle or, or situation that it's going to be to them. So part of that was to train site specific, um, schools. Um, so they have an idea of what they would do at their particular site. Um, and that's just basically train analysis, which police officers do automatically. They may not call it that, but you're looking at the vulnerabilities at how your school set up the footprint, the ex the exits, the, the ingress, the, Parts that are uh, would be good for uh, cover versus concealment, those kind of things. Exactly, you're educating you're, staff. Yeah, and you're learning the infrastructure and how you can use it to your advantage at that site. And how long did it take you from the time you started this program, getting buy-in from law enforcement in the school district, to actually completed the online, the lessons learned kind of two-hour session, and then the practical apps for all 1,800 employees? So nine months. So, so nine months, you trained 1,800 people. 1,800 teachers and staff from two different school districts. That number is higher because of uh, we are also brought that training into our city employees. So that was an additional 400 employees? Correct. And in nine, yeah, nine months, you know, we'll have 2,200 people in our community completely trained in critical incident response. And, you know, what I tell them all is this, is I tell them those are the people that are taking this training back to their churches or taking those trainings back to their, um, the concerts in the park, um, the hospitals, you know, the restaurants, the malls, the movie theaters where all these things could happen. But now you have 2,200 people in one community having an idea of what they could possibly do. God forbid if it happened in their community. And then how many exercises did you do with the students themselves? How did that roll out? So, so far we've, implemented two high schools to where we actually had a drill and you know part of the the program is no more codes when it comes to alerts and that kind of stuff no code red no lockdown don't calling anything to that you're using plain english when it comes to that and so what we did is is we would call out a location in the in the uh on campus on where that look where it would be and then we forced the teachers and their students to actually perform a barricade. So if they would evacuate, they received a card saying they would evacuate, but they would still perform a proper barricade inside their classroom. So two schools of approximately 28 to 2,900 students at both schools. All right. Well, thanks, Mitch. We appreciate you giving us just a brief description of the different components when you implemented that program. For more information, you can see Mitch's article in the Cato Magazine. You can also get it online at catonews.org. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.